Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Earlier today, I published an interview I did with my old friend Jonathan Rausch, who I bumped into in Gettysburg last week at the Braver Angels convention. Um, following up with a second interview with an equally interesting fellow. John Wood Jr. is a Los Angeles-based Republican, is a USA Today columnist, and he is the national ambassador for Braver Angels. So I began my conversation, naturally enough, with John Wood, the national ambassador for Braver Angels, asking him whether we needed more or less diplomacy in terms of trying to fix American democracy and getting people on the left and on the right to begin talking to one another again. Well, you know, I think we need, um, I think it's more that we need a bit more, a bit more empathy and certainly a great deal more goodwill and basic just sort of human respect, right? Um, yeah, you know, there's a sophistication and tactics of communication that are the, uh, the tools of any of any diplomat and those things have utility but the reason american uh, political society is fracturing in the way it is is because we've become so immensely tribalized that really we just have a difficult time even sharing spaces with each other or trusting each other to the degree to where we um, refrain from using the uh, the bludgeons of institutional power against each other in various different contexts and so there's very little trust in the media very little trust in congress very little trust um, in the white house and very little trust between uh, towards the parties and between the american people and so the absence of trust and goodwill things fall apart john the decision to hold your Braver Angels convention in Gettysburg can be taken in one of two ways, or perhaps simultaneously in two ways. Of course, Gettysburg is the site of the bloodiest civil war uh, in American history, bloodiest war perhaps, certainly in proportional terms in American history, the bloodiest uh, battle in the American Civil War of the 19th century. But it's also the place where Abraham Lincoln made his famous address about bringing the country together. In terms of choosing to situate your Braver Angels Convention in Gettysburg, which, um, which of those is more relevant as, as a place of battle, of bloodshed, or a place of civility and agreement? Well, both are relevant and have a direct relationship one to the other. Um, I think that we seek uh, 160 years after uh, those two events to tap into this history. Uh, one to connect us to um, to connect us to a spirit that seeks after reconciliation, that seeks after um, healing and a rehabilitation of trust between Americans. And uh, two, to sort of recognize what the ultimate consequences of that may be if such efforts fail. And of course, such efforts did fail in the 19th century. And um, obviously, all the complexities of history attend that. But in our own time, um, we're seeking to bring the American people together at this historic site um, of, that, of that key and bloody Civil War battle. Uh, in the hopes of preventing uh, of preventing another one or any uh, dissent into uh, 
into anything approaching, you know, that kind of self-destruction. And, um, you know, um, people think that that's not possible today. Hopefully it's not possible. But certainly, you know, things can unravel in a terrible and dramatic way. And we would like to prevent that. The war, the civil war of the 19th century was in part at least fought over the issue of race and of slavery. You moderated a very interesting session earlier today on the issue of race and politics in America. How central is the crisis of race relations, of the inequality between blacks and whites in America, and the crisis of American democracy? Well, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I would argue that race is always fairly central in the broader social currents of American life and with respect to the health or lack thereof of American democracy. That doesn't mean that it is a simple issue by any means. Um, I do think that um, racial identity and our interpretation of racial history and the racial nature of our current circumstances, and by the way, those are three different things, um, but I think that all of those things uh, tend to animate a lot of our uh, disagreements in terms of how it is we see the world. And so yeah, if you see American society as having been essentially born forth from an ethos of, of bitter racial animosity and uh, an agenda bent on subjugating various people, um, then you're going to have a certain orientation in terms of how it is uh, we talk about American life. If you see American life in the present as being rooted in systems and structures that are meant to continue or at least have the effect of continuing uh, a longer history of racial subjugation, then you're going to tend to look at our politics in a certain way. Um, if, on the other hand, you think that race is not a critically differentiating factor in terms of the outcomes that people come to um, in life in America, then that's going to lead you to, to, look, at, to look at history and to look at our politics uh, a certain way. And so the challenge becomes not so much getting people to, to come all the way over to each other in terms of how they interpret history and in terms of how they interpret the racial significance or lack thereof of uh, phenomena in our modern, our modern politics, but rather to deepen people's human understanding of why it is we see things in the way that we do in the first place. Because while it's always possible for people to receive a distorted narrative on a certain subject and maybe come to the wrong conclusion, so much of our views on things, including race, including politics, is born forth from experiences that are deeply human and that we would do well to understand in one another before we leap towards casting aspersions and rendering judgments on each other with respect to our characters uh, just on the basis of what our political opinions may be. That's the thing we have to get beyond. You're dancing around a little bit, John. I mean, what do you think on this? Uh, people on the right suggest that the problems, or some people at least on the right suggest, but the problems with American democracy is that it's descended into identity politics. Too much power for certain groups in society, perhaps non-whites. Um, on the left, people believe uh, that the, Repu the Republican Party has not only lost its mind, but lost its respect for democracy. That the Republican Party is increasingly dominated by men and women, mostly men, who want to obliterate democracy. Where do you stand on this? 
I, I understand how you're framing it, but let me let me let me ground it a little bit um, for us. Um, my father is a white man from Tennessee. He was born in 1950. He's somebody who loves African Americans, and that has a fair amount to do with how I got to be here. And uh, he's a person who I think, in general, feels that race is not a major issue in American life anymore. And uh, you know, why would he look at things any any differently? I mean, he's grown up in a world where. You know, he was able to see the success of you know, folks from Willie Mays to Barack Obama. He's got African-American sons who have done well in life. He's been friends with black people his whole life. And so for him, I think it may not be immediately obvious why people are still complaining about race. On the other hand, um, I've got relatives on my mom's side of the family. I married into a family in the Jordan Downs projects in Watts, um, where you have people who've been living in violence and in poverty for multiple generations who descend from a history of Jim Crow segregation and going all the way back to slavery and the terrorism of the Ku Klux Klan. These are people uh, who have, uh, who in their family history um, have not owned their own homes in multiple generations, have never attended a school system that actually serves their interests, and whose only relationship to many white people is in the forms of, of police who oftentimes do their jobs with a chip on their shoulders or overworked county bureaucrats. Or, or public school teachers who find themselves overwhelmed and, and embittered by the circumstances in which they do their jobs. When you compare experiences that are this starkly different, you know, and then ask, well, why is it one side just can't see how it is the other side just happens to be, it just happens to be right, uh, we leap past the nuances of experience that really should be where we're focusing our attention. And so it's not that I'm trying to dance around the issue. I'm trying to sort of hone in on the fact that while we're trying to sort of race forward to sort of the, the winning statement in a debate, we're losing sight of the fact that we've lost sight of each other's human stories. And if we don't get a grip on that, you know, we're not going to be able to create the environment in which people are going to be able to talk about these issues in schools, where people are going to be able to work side by side with each other if they feel threatened by each other's politics, by the bumper sticker you've got on your car or the hat that you're wearing, and the constituencies that will be cultivated by our elected officials and the audiences that will be generated by the political and the partisan media will be formulated according to stoking those tribal prejudices in a way that makes those things the forces that sort of drive the agenda or the lack of a constructive agenda uh, in government and in media. So that's where I'm trying to refocus us, and in some sense that's the work of Braver Angels. In your very interesting uh, session that you moderated earlier today, uh, John, there were two um, African-American gentlemen with quite different, actually, opinions on the health of American democracy and how to reform it. Do you think whites need to understand that, that the African-American community is no more united than the white community? Do we need to get beyond the idea that all blacks or all whites or all Hispanics or for that matter all men and women think alike? Uh, yes, but of course I would say that that is the case for everybody. Um, yeah, no, it's meaningfully important to recognize the fact that there is a wide spectrum of black experience and black perspective. So, you know, certainly there is a tendency to say, well, you know, the black experience is this, or black people think that. And whenever you say that, you're going to be saying something that's true for some folks, but not for all, right? 
So that's certainly true, and the same applies when you know anybody decides to say like, well, you know, white people think this, or white people are the problem for this reason or that reason. They think this way or do this sort of thing. But you know, when you start breaking it down according to where people come from geographically, religiously, um, politically, class-wise, um, all sorts of all sorts of things, age-wise, you know, you start to you start to you know witness the the diversity within groups. That should be a part of what allows us to sort of humanize each other and, and, and develop a more sophisticated approach uh, to the issues that, that divide us. The subtitle for the Braver Angels Convention is Holding America Together. Is that a good metaphor? What does it mean? It sounds as, as if Braver Angels are trying to, to nurse America back to health. Mm. Yeah, I think that the language we have on the website uh, reads uh, Rise for America. And Rise for America is meant to sort of invoke a spirit of coming together in order to build a movement that can heal the divides, right? Uh, hold America together, uh, maybe that's on there too. Now this was a phrase that uh, was deployed in the aftermath or in the lead up to the 2020 election when there was a fear of political violence in, in the streets. At that time, uh, we had organized uh, a number of local Braver Angels groups that were meant to be um, activated in the event of political violence following the the election. Of course, as it turned out, there was violence, at least in Washington, D.C., on, on January, January 6th. Um, yeah, you know, there is a way in which there is a nurturing of, of wounds that, that is communicated by that language, and that is a part of what we do. Many of our um, um, workshops and interventions, uh, most of them are born out of um, uh, born out of methods derived from family therapy and marriage counseling. Uh, and so, yes, in terms of creating the, the spaces in which we can more deeply sort of reach each other and empathize with each other, um, you know, there's, there is a, a focus on sort of, you know, creating the necessary psychological context for healing that is intimate, uh, intimately, um, uh, intimately a part of what it is we do. At the same time, I do think that uh, we won't succeed in what it is we're trying to do unless we're able to mobilize people uh, to, to really apply pressure to elected officials to work within institutions and otherwise organize uh, on behalf of a more constructive pro politics. So that's not just a matter of healing, that's a matter of having the courage to take a stand. And so that's uh, a point of emphasis um, without which uh, we cannot succeed, and that's, well, that's really why we refer to ourselves as braver angels in the first place. There's also, it seems to me, uh, spent the morning here, John, um, quite a, a strong religious part to this. It doesn't mean that everyone at your convention is born again in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of speeches by Mormons, um, and I've spoken to a number of other people from Christian organizations of one kind or another, actually some Jewish and Muslim too. Mm -hmm. How important is religion in Braver Angels and perhaps in holding American democracy together? Well, you know, my opinion is that it is, it is very important on all of those levels. Um, Religion is a tool uh, either for great unity and healing or for great division and destruction. And so communities of faith, I think, always need to eventually sort of make a decision as to what path uh, they are going to pursue. Uh, my hope is that Braver Angels 
proves itself to be a home for people of faith of all orders uh, to come and to live up to the higher callings uh, of religious conviction, which in my mind uh, is a dedication uh, to, to love, to hope, and to the sort of faith that calls upon us to bring out the best in each other, right? And so, you know, those essential qualities of goodwill and humility and wisdom, you know, these are things that the body politic needs. And I think that are, these are virtues and values that Braver Angels cherishes and seeks to make space for as well. Now, you know, it's tricky in just so far as, um, you know, many of our folks, most of our folks even, are probably secular-leaning, uh, um, or, or if they're religious, they're not uh, centrally so necessarily and so yes there's very you know tense conversations and a fair amount of friction over you know in the in a, in a braver angels context sort of how explicitly we should appeal to americans religious sensibilities and in a broader american context of course there's a long-standing tension over the question of well just how central should anybody's religious faith or convictions be in the public square and so those dialogues, those debates are ongoing, but we seek to create a home for those debates uh, to be had in a constructive way uh, in Braver Angels as well. Uh, John, in early July 2023, it seems reasonably likely that the next election will be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, a repeat of the mm -hmm. 2020 uh, election. Yeah. Uh, there are all sorts of groups, in addition to Braver Angels, that are disappointed by this. Mm. Uh, there's the No Labels group, we've had them on our show before, mm, sure. talking about running a third candidate. Are Braver Angels more focused on bringing the two sides together or establishing third ways? Well, it's a good question, and I do think that we have a natural appeal to Americans of both mindsets. So we have many people coming to us who who want to sort of bridge the divide between the two sides, and we also have many Americans who come to us just looking for a new paradigm altogether. Uh, and I, I think that part of what we want to be able to do in our community-based Braver Angels alliances is create environments and to offer tools that allow people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or with third parties, to be able to run for office, serve in office, and otherwise engage the community in ways that whatever their political affiliation may be allows them to more constructively work with and build relationships with the community. Having said that, Braver Angels does not endorse candidates, certainly not, not as a national organization. Uh, we are not running any tickets, we are not endorsing any third party um, any third party electoral aspirations um, that's just not that's just not what we do give me some numbers John uh, I, I've been impressed with the enthusiasm mm -hmm. and size of the crowd here um, but um, these are your your hardcore activists how many people have been involved or are involved in braver angels in July 2023 around America yeah, as of as of now, I think we're at about we're upwards of twelve thousand or so dues-paying members, about twenty-five hundred registered volunteers or so. Uh, presences on um, we have presence on about seventy-five college campuses uh, in America. I think somewhere between eighty and ninety local bipartisan alliances. Uh, we of course have programs uh, running uh, in state and local governments across the country. I couldn't tell you exactly how many off the top of my head, but that's growing as our Braver Politics Pro initiative grows. 
And uh, I think we have just south of 700 delegates, uh, left and right in equal numbers, as well as folks from third parties and who declined to identify uh, here at this convention today as we speak. Um, and so, you know, sort of big fish in a small pond. I mean, you know, there are uh, a number of other uh, organizations focused on depolarization to do good work. Uh, we are the largest and best established of those organizations that are doing that work chiefly on a grassroots level, although of course we work extensively with institutions and governments as well. Um, but of course our organization, our membership community is much smaller than what you'd have at Greenpeace or the NRA or something like that. And so, you know, I do, I do uh, hope that we can create the, the space and the enthusiasm in America to greatly swell those ranks in the years to come. But those are, that is where we stand uh, as of today. John, when you look back at the history of democracy in America, whatever that means, are you nostalgic for a certain period? Of course, some people look back at the 19th century <laughs> to Tocqueville's America. That was the century also where slavery existed. Some people look back at the 1950s where uh, you still had Jim Crow, where women barely had much power. Mm -hmm. Are you in any way nostalgic? Can we learn from history, not only negatively, but positively in terms of what we want to make American democracy like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, history is full of negative and positive lessons, just as the moment is filled, just as the present moment is filled with negative and positive, and so will the future. Um, you know, the problems with the 1950s was, you know, everything you just said. I mean, you know, this was, this was a Jim Crow, Jim Crow era, racial segregation, um, de jure and de facto, uh, was real across, across America. Um, you know, all of those problems, um, you know, the, the anti-communist hysteria at, at home, McCarthyism, et cetera, et cetera, all of those problems were real. At the same time, what was also true about that period of time is that inter-party uh, polarization was much more minimal. You didn't have people disowning each other for being Republicans and Democrats. The political parties themselves tended to try and cast a wider net in terms of how they engaged with the American people. Um, they tended to not be ideologically captured in the way that you can argue at least the parties are today. And you can say something very similar about the media. Uh, that the media at that time sought to speak to all Americans. And, uh, you know, whether or not it, it fully did so in a credible way, it at least tended, I think, by the lights of most people, to be a place at which we could go for sort of a common sourcing of information, and figures like Walter Cronkite on the whole, I think, probably tended to be unifying figures in our in our national life. Those things are completely, you know, flipped uh, today. And so, you know, uh, yeah, you don't want to wear the rose-colored glasses for too long. Um, you always miss uh, the deep undercurrents of distress that are always real in history. At the same time, we don't want to get so cynical about the past that we uh, rob ourselves of the ability to learn from some of the positive things that might have been might have been in evidence there if we if we look back uh, clear-eyed. And so, you know, I try to be balanced in, in the way I in the way I revisit and and interpret American history or the history of American democracy. Uh, as we speak, John, uh, Facebook have announced uh, another. Twitter competitor on Instagram. Uh, some people believe that intolerance and hatred uh, has been compounded, perhaps even caused by social media, by the echo chambers of social media. You, met, you mentioned Walter Cronkite, of course, in his day. There were a handful of television stations that he spoke to all Americans, even if he didn't agree on everything. Right. 
Is social media the problem, John, or the answer, or both? <laughs> well, social media at the current moment, I think, is on balance a huge problem for American democracy. Um, you know, it's, it's designed to maximize connection and interaction in a way, but in a way that doesn't do much to cultivate an actual sort of healthy level of discourse or an interpersonal or intergroup culture of, of empathy. Uh, really, social media is trying to maximize our attention, and part of the, you know, part of the sad truth about human nature is that our attention is drawn and held by negative and conflictual things. And if you can stoke our fears, if you can stoke our contempt, um, you can do a lot to keep people uh, scrolling. Frankly, you know, uh, on a feed, and so you know, algorithms pick up on this and we get this sort of fed this this unending diet of toxicity um, our moral imagination has not caught up to our technological innovation I think in terms of devi de de uh, devising um, digital spaces that allow us to connect at scale but to do so in ways that are socially healthy now there are you know people out there who are trying to change that uh, Tristan Harris is somebody who I love and admire and you know we've sort of uh, had some some indirect um, uh, relationships organizationally with some of the work he and others are doing. But overall, um, I think we're still pretty far behind in terms of where we need to be uh, with respect to reorienting our, our, our digital democracy, so to speak. Uh, so we've got a long way to go as far as social media is concerned. So finally, um, John, what's the answer to addressing intolerance? danced around this one a little bit in this conversation too. Mm. What do you think Braver Angels needs to address to focus on in terms of confronting the intolerance that seems to be undermining, corrupting, perhaps even killing American You know, it's, it's a highly multilateral uh, answer. It's, it's not any one thing, but I do think that there is one thing at the root of it. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the multi-dynamic nature of the response has to be that we ultimately develop sort of, a, sort of a systematic ecosystem for reinforcing and incentivizing empathy and understanding across communities, across demographies, and across institutions. Uh, and so if you look at the way polarization operates at scale in American society, it's not just that people hate each other, you know, people have always hated each other or misunderstood each other or feared each other, it's that that phenomenon is uh, sort of artificially turbocharged by a relationship that exists between the media and social media, polarizing an audience that then in turn becomes the base constituencies that select our politicians, that then in turn become the elected folks who have zero incentive oftentimes to work across the aisle, which then leaves us with, with an ineffectual government, which then leaves people angry and frustrated and our larger sort of societal uh, needs unmet, which then contributes to a deterioration in our trust in institutions. Uh, and that bleeds into the way we look at the judicial system and the educational system and all of these other things. Uh, by having a presence um, in local communities, in governments at every level, um, in, in the media, of course, Brave Rangers is digital media content that we're innovating, but we're also seeking to create relationships uh, with various other media enterprises. Uh, the Deseret News is here, Gannett Publishing uh, is, is, uh, has been a, a, a collaborator. You guys are here talking to me, that's a good thing, right? Um, by creating an ecosystem that essentially uh, positively reinforces and systematically incentivizes 
human empathy and constructive connection, perhaps we can get that formula going the other way. But the one thing that it's rooted in, ultimately, is, I would say, just a sheer and simple belief in the power of goodwill, or as Dr. King described it, agape love. Uh, Dr. King believed that love is a spiritual power that could affect social transformation. And you don't have to be religious to understand that we have the capacity to call out the best in each other if only we are willing to call out the best in ourselves first. It's not easy, and you know, some circumstances it's far harder to do than others, and you're not always going to get uh, a great deal of reciprocity from people who don't want to hear what you have to say. But if we're patient with each other long enough, and if we can take and if we can find ways of embodying that attitude and that way of being in our institutional roles in American life, as well as in our social and familial roles, then maybe, just maybe, we can catalyze a culture of norms in American life that can push against the tide of toxicity and contempt that has become so rampant uh, in our democratic society. And so, that is the project I'm committed to, and again, uh, that is the work of Braver Angels.